All right, we are back. We, you know, on this part of the program, we like to do obituaries, and we're way behind in that category as well. But uh, I guess if we're going to pick one, and I think we'll just pick one today, let's catch up by noting the passing of music legend Ike Turner. I must say, do you remember seeing Ike and Tina Turner perform at the Winterland Auditorium back about 1972, 71, 72, something like that? Not too long after their first million seller, that is uh, Ike and Tina Turner's first million seller, Proud Mary, along with, I think, River Deep, Mountain High were their two biggest hits, but they were they were quite popular for quite a long time, and of course, uh, Tina Turner is still with us churning out hits. But I think, uh, as always, The Economist magazine delivers the goods when it comes to writing a rather pithy obituary, which I think I will now quote from. Reading Ike Turner's own account of his life, you might suppose that things had come a little too easy. Sex, for example. At the age of six, he'd walked to school in Mississippi past the house of a middle-aged lady called Miss Boozy. Every day, she would be there in her thin cotton dress asking him to feed her chickens. Afterwards, she would tidy him up, then take him to bed and teach him the moves. In those days, they didn't call it abuse, said Mr. Turner later, chortling at the memory. They called it fun. Or take cocaine, which Mr. Turner did to such effect in the 1970s that he reckoned he'd spent $11 million on his habit. It started with two friends slipping him a wad of paper with about a half a gram inside in Vegas in 1960. He put some in his nose, out of curiosity, more or less, and felt nothing, but was then astounded to find that he wanted to stay up all night writing music, and was still lively the next day. In a short time, he was ordering it by the suitcase and passing it around to friends. Or take Tina. She sashayed up to him one night in 1957, Anna Bullock, as she was then, just 18, with a wild, wide mouth and incredible legs, and took the mic away from him to show how she could sing. Her voice was a powerhouse. Naturally, she joined the band. Mr. Turner was vague as to whether they ever got married exactly. He got some piece of paper from a photographer's booth in Mexico that seemed to make it official, though afterwards he vaguely remembered being married already with two children. Well, said the magazine, he never pretended to be a good father. Anyway, both Ike and Tina Turner were inducted into Rock and Roll's Hall of Fame in 1991, and having seen them in action, I can say they were pretty good. Now, we mentioned in recent weeks how this writer's strike in Hollywood continues to drag on, and how uh, people over on the internet seem to think that uh, paying writers is something that just isn't done. How indeed it's very tough for someone who writes for a living to, to earn, uh, earn their keep uh, on the web. And I thought of this when I finally got around to following up on an article on Cary Grant, which appeared in The Atlantic in the January-February issue of last year. It's a very good article by Benjamin Schwartz titled Becoming Cary Grant. And I was especially taken by the article because it opened with a famous quote from Archie Leach. I pretended to be somebody I wanted to be, and I finally became that person or he became me, or we met at some point. Noted Mr. Schwartz, that meeting when Archie Leach, the Bristol-born son of a part Jewish suit presser, came to be fully assimilated by his creation, Cary Grant, amounts to one of the great events in the annals of 20th century culture. 
Now, a lot of folks with good reason consider Cary Grant to be one of the most uh, important actors uh, in the history of the cinema. And I think a pretty good case can be made for that. Like a lot of people who are geniuses at what they do, like Fred Astaire when he's dancing, uh, Cary Grant makes it look easy. And I, I must confess, I've often used that quote of his uh, that opens the article uh, in reference to what we've been trying to do here at Radio Parallax. Yours truly is not a journalist by any stretch. I've got no training in it, but uh, seeing the general quality of what passes for uh, journalism and, and talk show radio out there, we've been operating on the premise that we certainly can do as well. I, I've called it the Cary Grant theory of journalism. You can start out as Archie Leach, but if you set out to be Cary Grant long enough, you can eventually become him. And it is interesting that Archie Leach uh, had been an acrobat, a juggler, a stilt walker, a mime. But he left the UK and came to America to uh, become a stage actor. He then left the stage to come to Hollywood to become a movie actor and succeeded brilliantly. But for about 20 films in Hollywood, he was basically what was described as a rather stilted Valentino. But he really found himself one particular film titled The Awful Truth in 1937. And uh, it took me uh, 11 months to do it, but I finally saw The Awful Truth around Christmas time. And I must say, it's awfully good. But the nice thing about uh, DVDs are they have extras on them. And, and the extra for The Awful Truth contained uh, a look at Cary Grant done by the, um, the movie channel. I think it was AMC. And he mentioned the fact that when Cary Grant started to do this film and the director, the distinguished Leo McCary, was having the actors improvise numerous of the lines, Grant just threw his hands up. He went to the, uh, the head of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn, and tried to get out of his contract. Didn't think he could do it. Cohn said, to hell with you. He went back, continued to work with McCary, who also produced uh, such screen gems as the Marx Brothers' probably greatest film, Duck Soup, and the two continued to work on this witty dialogue, uh, which, by the way, was written by S.J. Perlman, also one of the, uh, the, the script writers who put together some of the finest Marx Brothers comedies. So I always find it interesting that even though there, you know, there's a writer that's laying down some of the most brilliant material, he's always ignored by, uh, by the people that look back at great films. The Awful Truth is a very good movie because of some fine writing by S.J. Perlman, some brilliant directing by Leo McCary, and a, a, a great performance by Cary Grant. It is in that movie that seemingly from nowhere that the Cary Grant persona that we know uh, appears, uh, you know, fully developed. You see that detached, distracted wit, the knowing charm, the, the arch self-mockery, the bemused awareness of his audience with whom he's sharing a joke the acrobatic physical comedy, the cocked head, the double takes, and not least, the good-natured ease combined with a genius for pitiless teasing. Anyway, if you haven't seen The Awful Truth and some of the other great works of Cary Grant, check them out. Uh, a lot of the older stuff is black and white, and it, it really saddens me to note that this, just, this stuff just doesn't move out of the, uh, the DVD stores. The, uh, the younger consumer who was never really exposed to black and white movies or black and white television just uh, doesn't seem to be terribly interested. It looks, it looks weird to them, I guess. And uh, to, such, uh, to such listeners, I would say, get over it. Rent the Marx Brothers Duck Soup. Rent Cary Grant's and Leo McCary's The Awful Truth and, and, and uh, you know, some of the classics like Gunga Din. 
the Philadelphia story, and gosh, anything you want to mention by Charlie Chaplin. All right, here's a couple stories that uh, come out of the archives, which are pretty, uh, pretty amazing. According to the Associated Press, uh, last October, long secret papers show that the U.S. Army pursued the use of radioactive poisons for assassinations. It was called one of the longest-held secrets of the Cold War, but the U.S. Army did explore the potential for using radioactive poisons to assassinate important individuals, such as military or civilian leaders, according to a newly declassified document attained by the Associated Press. The article noted it was approved at the highest levels of the Army in 1948 and was a well-hidden part of the military's pursuit of a, quote, new concept of warfare, unquote, using radioactive materials from atomic bomb-making to contaminate swaths of enemy land or to target military bases, factories, or troop formations. Noted the article, targeting public figures in such attacks is certainly not unheard of. Last year, an unknown assailant used a tiny amount of radioactive plutonium-210 to kill Kremlin critic Alexander Litvinenko. So, clearly, the method can work. Although, according to the papers that surfaced, there is no uh, known evidence that the U.S. Army ever actually used uh, radioactive materials to kill people. And from the other side of the Atlantic, we have a, uh, an equally, if not more, startling uh, revelation from secret papers. David Cohn, writing in New Scientist magazine last June, opened with, the paper is such that it would be inadvisable to publish it at the present time. So ends a yellowed note dated 18 December 1941 from James Chadwick to the UK's Royal Society. The note was attached to a batch of papers written by two French physicists, Hans Halban and Lou Kowarski. What was James Chadwick, discoverer of the neutron, so concerned about? And why did the Royal Society heed his request to seal the papers? Well, to mark the 75th anniversary of Chadwick's discovery of the neutron, the Royal Society broke the seal on these papers to find out that they outlined the design of a nuclear fission reactor and ways of initiating a nuclear chain reaction. Given that continental Europe was already under Nazi control, this was rather explosive material. The papers were evidently discovered... Uh, about 18 months ago in a box on a shelf in the Royal Society's archives. One of the papers was entitled Technological Aspects of Nuclear Chain Reactions Used as a Source of Power. They show a clear understanding of all the crucial aspects that allow fission reactions to occur. Now it turns out that Hans Halban and Lou Kowarski um, you know, were able to use this knowledge after the war to help some nuclear power programs get started in Europe. The article notes that in these unsealed paper, in these recently unsealed papers, that the French scientists were trying to protect their intellectual property, and they wanted to make sure that the French got recognition uh, uh, for the work. And it's not clear in the article whether uh, those patent uh, patent applications held up. The article closed by noting that UK intelligence agency MI6 kept a file on Kowarski. He was known to be left-leaning and a friend of fellow Cambridge physicist Alan Nunn May, the scientist turned spy who stole secrets from the British and American atomic programs and gave them to the Soviets. And speaking of atomic secrets, uh, Russia posthumously gave its highest award to George Koval last November. 
He was an American who stole the secrets of the atomic bomb and gave them to the Soviets. The U.S. Uh, has long known about Koval's treachery, but, um, but uh, his full role is just coming into public light. His uh, family had emigrated from Iowa to Siberia during the Great Depression when he was a teenager. He was trained as a physicist and recruited by the KGB and sent back to the U.S. to spy. In 1940, he got drafted into the Army and ended up working in the Manhattan Project. Now, uh, the Soviets had the atomic bomb by 1949, and historians say Koval, who returned to Russia after the war, may have been one of the most important spies of the 20th century. He died in Moscow in 2006. I'm always intrigued by the fact that we know that there were numerous spies in the Manhattan Project that basically uh, that leaked the necessary information to uh, Stalinist Russia that allowed them to build a bomb years ahead of schedule. But I know that many mysteries remain as to who some of those spies were. And perhaps, uh, perhaps as the story of George Koval leaks out, we'll find out that he was one of the big players. I do know that, you know, throughout history, it does seem that uh, no matter which secret you, uh, you try and protect by vast expenditures, uh, someone's always willing to sell it out at a bargain basement rate to somebody who wants the data. And speaking of Russia, we've got to talk about what Vladimir Putin's been up to, but we are out of time today. So let's call it. We'd like to thank our old pal Will Durst, as well as Ginger Rutland of the Sacramento Bee for their contributions. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We'll see you next week at the same time. Soviet Mr. Tru-